It's just after 6 o'clock, and you are listening to WFMU. My name is Benjamin Walker, and this is Too Much Information. We have a very, very jam-packed Too Much Information tonight. Art, films, theater, children's health care. We actually have the writer Helen Epstein joining us live for the second half of the program tonight to tell us about S. Josephine Baker, one of America's greatest public health crusaders. And it's kind of amazing that it worked out that we're going to be talking as the country shuts down over health care. But let's get into it. We're going to start off with a new show at the Met. It's called Cats and Girls, Paintings and Provocations. The painter Balthus. It opened up last week and it runs until January 12th. The exhibition is curated by Sabine Rewald, who is the Jacques and Natasha Gelman Curator for Modern Art at the Met. She actually also worked on the Met's last great Baltus retrospective, which was way back in 1984. Let's welcome Sabine to WFMU. FMU. Thank you. Hello. So can you give us a quick introduction about this? Yes. Balthus uh, was born in 1908 in Paris to German uh, parents. And uh, when World War I broke out in 1914, the family, being German, had to leave France. And they lived um, for the next 10 years a sort of very unsettled life in Berlin, in Bern, Geneva, back Berlin, Switzerland. And in 1924, they came back to Paris. Baltus was self-taught and um, copied at an early age Poussin and the Louvre. Piero della Francesca in Arezzo, and what he told me in a conversation, that he strove for a timeless realism. Mm. So he wanted to, in a way, uh, achieve the classical order of early Renaissance painting, and then he was also very influenced by Courbet and the central surface of Courbet's paintings. And, of course, uh, that is a strange combination with the images of, for which he is most known for and almost relentlessly identified of children in closed rooms between childhood and adolescence. He was interested in, the, in that strange state of adolescence, um, which is a, a stage marked by boredom and rebellion. And poets and writers can express it very well with words, but it is very difficult to express with paint. And Baptiste did it with paint. Yeah, now this is not a lifelong retrospective, which I would imagine is very liberating, but it seems like it's a very personal show for you. In the essay in the catalog, you talk about your very first encounter with some of his images, which were in black and white when you saw them, and some of those are in the show. And I'm wondering if you could talk about what captivated you then about these pictures and what do you feel captivates uh, viewers today in 2013? I was captivated when I saw these images in the slim catalogs that Pierre Matisse published. And Pierre Matisse was his dealer since 38, patient, wonderful dealer, because Baltus didn't bring him much money in the beginning. The, the black and white images of children in closed rooms had a certain eeriness and tension. And they reminded me of my childhood in Germany growing up 
with what is called Slovenly Peter, Strubel Peter, who also, um, it is a humorous, uh, wonderful, their morality tales that when children don't eat their soup, they will die if they um, play with uh, matches and the parents tell them don't play with matches and they do play with matches. They often go uh, up in fire and all that's left is a heap of ashes with mourning little cats. So Baltus's pictures in black and white seemed more dramatic to me even than in color. Ah. And these were the images that he painted in the 30s, which I find are his finest pictures. And so that's why I started this exhibition uh, in the 30s and only went up to the 50s when Balthus painted in France. And the um, inspiration for this exhibition really were the portraits he painted of a neighborhood child, Therese Blanchard. And he painted very poignant, moving portraits of her um, with her brother, with her cat, or alone. Yeah, yeah. Let's and, talk about cats for a second. Um, and, and going back to one of the, the key images in this uh, show, which is the king of cats, which is a self-portrait. Can you tell us a little bit about this image, describe it for the listener, and what that tells us about the man himself? Well, it is, a, it is a picture that combines the qualities of Balthus. He was a brilliant portraitist. He looks very haughty and debonair in these pictures. He must have painted it in a mirror. He looks sort of slightly from above <laughs> at us. It's dressed like a Byronic dandy in dark colors. And there is a huge fat cat that rubs her body against his lower leg. She was a cat that always visited him and came through the skylight in Paris when he had his first studio. And he calls it the portrait of the king of cats. And there is a, nothing in the picture but a little stool and a lion tamer's. Um, how do you call it? A lion the, the tamer's whip. The whip. whip. Yeah, yeah. Right. A whip. <laughs> and so that's a sense of humor, do you see, for that big fat cat, a lion tamer's whip. And then there is a little, um, well, how do you call it? A marble. A slab. It's just. A, it looks like a little tombstone that says, you know, gives the yeah. inscription, His Majesty the King of Cats. So that is Baltus. He reserved the title King of Cats for himself and painted a young English woman who was a friend, and she only was the Princess of Cats. And I discovered that painting in London many years ago. He gave it to a friend in in uh. Paris who he moved in a circle already of poets and writers. And um, one day he came, this young English woman came home and she found on her um, chimney a, <clears throat> this painting that Baltus had placed there as oh, a gift. Wow, wow, wow. And she kept it forever. Wow. And so, it is now, yes, it's now with the Baltus Foundation. Oh, wow. So let's talk about one of the ones with the girls and a cat. Well, why don't we talk about the nicest picture in the show, which is Therese dreaming, which is in the first room, where Therese leans back and dreams, and there is a sort of a cat uh, lapping milk, and she sits as children often sit when they feel unobserved or unguarded, which is often, you know, they... They, uh, they might seem provocative. I have seen many mothers in, in public buses in 
uh, New York when children sit rather uh. Uh, provocatively and the mother then nervously pulls down the skirt so children flaunt their certain in, inherent eroticism. So what makes these pictures of Dalsis even even more interesting is that he refused and um, said that it has nothing to do with eroticism. These are angels. So I think he, he said that in a tongue-in-cheek, uh, provocative way, because, of course, um, children are unselfconsciously erotic, and that is what Albert Camus, who was a friend of Baltus, he wrote a preface to an exhibition of Baltus in 1949 at the Pierre Matisse Gallery, you know, one of these little books in black and white I mentioned before. Uh -huh. And he said, of course, childhood is erotic, but unselfconsciously so. But we should beware not to identify Baltus with only one subject matter. Yeah, yeah. It, it's you know you say the word tongue in cheek there, but you quote him. You 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 tell us about something he said in 1996, where he puts his foot down and says, "I've actually never made anything pornographic except perhaps the guitar lesson." Yeah. We're supposed to take this not so seriously? No, not at all. Look, he wasn't he was an ancient man by then, when he was he was living in in Switzerland. He was retired, and he only started uh, when he when he left Rome and lived in Switzerland starting in the late 70s to receive journalists for the first time. Uh, you know, I think he, he, he was old by this time, and I think he felt that it was really in the eye of the beholder to see anything untold. You see, I, as a woman, have never seen anything mm. um, untaught and provocative. I think with Baltus, it's in the eye of the beholder. If you see something un untaught, then I think that is what you project into it. Ah. You know, there's one fascinating thing I learned from you in your essay. You, you, you point out that uh, the children never smile, but the cats do. Yes. What does that, what does that what, say? Well, that? I mean, you have been adolescent yourself. You remember the periods of boredom and rebellion. Baltus made these very strong pictures, I think, because he caught children as they are. They are, they are bored, they are uh, rebellious, and, and what, I think those pictures, if you see smiling adolescents, would you want to look at these pictures? These pictures are so interesting because there's an inherent tension, because <laughs> he depicts this stage so realistically, and that's why these pictures are moving. That's Sabine Rewald, curator of the New Baltus show at the Met. It's called Cats and Girls. And it opened last week, and it runs till January 12th, so you do have plenty of time to, to check it out, but don't put it off for too long. This is Too Much Information. My name is Benjamin Walker. So much going on right now. Usually I uh, skip out on theater stuff because you know there's eight million other things to do in 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 town but uh uh and i've seen some not so great things but uh there is a play out right now called mr burns that's uh, a post-electric play that's kind of blew my mind it's hard to even describe it but basically there is a total meltdown of society. All of our infrastructure is destroyed, nuclear power plants, the electric grid. And slowly, slowly, human beings try to come back together. And they do this 
around The Simpsons. So I phoned up writer Ann Washburn to talk to her about it. So um, I was, you know, I'm dying to ask you about where this story begins for you, you know, as a writer. Were you just like thinking about the failure of the electrical grid one day? Are you a big Simpsons nerd? Or did you just want to bring your own vision of a post-apocalyptic world to the stage? Like, where does this all begin? I think it just came from every now and then on the subway or whatever, musing about the apocalypse and what would life be like after it and what would my place in it be and... And just kind of thinking about what would happen if you had a, just what would happen to a narrative if you pushed it past the apocalypse? What would happen to pop culture? How would it change? How would it, how would it change in importance? So I kind of had this idea for years, just bumping around in the back of my head. And I thought it would be really fun to do, but I also really knew that I wanted to start working on it by getting together a group of actors for a chunk of time for more than one day and really just working on seeing what they could remember. I knew I wanted to start it with an act of them remembering. And um, and that just seemed complicated, because I could pull together a group of friends for free for a day, but I couldn't pull together people for a week. It would just be too much to ask. And then I uh, was talking with Steve Costin, who runs The Civilians, which is an investigative theater troupe that I'm, I'm a founding member of, although I'm not writers aren't heavily involved in the group. It's more of a director-actor group. And they had a commission... Uh, they were about to apply for a commission and they wondered if I had any ideas and this seemed really appropriate. So we applied for the commission, got it and stuck this group of civilians actors, almost all of whom are now actually in the show. Um, we stuck them in this bank vault deep underneath wall street, which was a free rehearsal space at the time and had them and tasked them with remembering a Simpsons Where episode. Uh, pandas. Pandas. Right. Uh, and Mo is shooing them away. On delay, on delay. Uh, that was so much earlier. We were actually... Movie theater. Oh, right, we were in the movie theater. I'll stay away from your son, all right. I'll stay away forever. <laughs> so good. And then he goes off. He goes off, and then next, they're on a houseboat. Um, they're on a houseboat? On Cape Fear, is it, in the cartoon? Terror Lake. Right! <laughs> And there are piranhas. That whole section that you see in the beginning of the play where they're, they're kind of putting the episode together by memory, those are their actual lines. That's Matt Mayer and uh, Jennifer Morris and Maria Dizia. Um, kind of, they did a couple different versions of it, which I smushed together, but those are, those are their wow. words. And that's kind of a, a bit of a Simpsons recalling savant. Yeah, yeah. As I think chunks of people would be. Are you a, a huge Simpsons fan? I'm not an enormous Simpsons fan. I couldn't win trivia contests, but I, but I, I love it, of course. I mean, I watched it a lot. I mean, I, would, I don't know the, how often I watched it on the broadcast date, but I feel like my whole post-college life was all about coming home from work and watching a rerun of The Simpsons. Often. You know, so I have... I don't know that I've seen all the most important episodes, but I'm, I'm super familiar with the show and yeah. characters. But, and You know, if your idea is imagining how this piece of pop culture sort of continues on after the, the apocalypse, though, what seems so unique about The Simpsons is that the episodes themselves are so meta. In fact, the one that you, your uh, characters are very interested in from the beginning is, a, is the Cape Fear episode, which again is referring to a remake and an original and all these other references. And it seems that that's so crucial to your 
story and that, you know, the references might disappear after the apocalypse, but who cares? Right, because it contains, it contains all of the rest of it. I mean, Michael, one line in the show that um, Michael Friedman, the composer, really loves is in the second act when Matt, they're talking about rival Simpsons group and Matt Mayer says, oh, it really kills me, but they've got streetcar. <laughs> Meaning streetcar named Marge, but this idea that the only way streetcar named Desire survives is through that. No, it seems, uh, now it seems like a, a really fundamental idea. I mean, yeah. it seems like it, it itself is already a kind of collecting ground for our culture. And then it also seems like the kind of narrative which would be really durable after an apocalypse because it's about family and it's about community. And and it's also a show which has been on forever. And it's also a show that people really, lots of people really specifically love to remember it. I have a terrible memory. I'm not one of those people. I could not, I could not carry the culture forward in any way. But a lot of people have. Off the commercial. Go, go, go. In the second act of the show, the people we hear remembering The Simpsons at the beginning are now a troupe, one of many acting troupes that perform nightly Simpsons productions for audiences. And we see that they're also reproducing television commercials as well. And they get into arguments about what they're doing. Some believe they, they should be doing mindless entertainment, others social commentary. I think the act of reproducing a piece of pop culture exactly is what is so important to people in the second act. I mean, the way that I think about it is that what would be important, you know, if you lose your entire civilization, everyone you know, pretty much, and your entire civilization, you are not going to be able to touch that emotionally directly at all for a very long period of time. And the second act is only seven years in. So, so taking something which seems so, you know, which is funny and lighthearted and which people associate with sitting around watching TV with friends laughing, you know, just that association in itself is comforting, but that the, the act of recalling very exactly becomes really important. I really feel it's like, you know, like little kids, if they're feeling anxious and you tell them a story and then they say, tell it to me again, and you've got to tell it the exact same way, or they freak out and they're like, no, no, you didn't do it that way before. I want it, I want it the way you did it before. So I feel like it's not even so much the narratives which are important to the people in the second act, but the fact that everyone is exerting all of their power to make them as exact as they were, to remember them as exactly as they could. And then the commercials, I feel like, oddly, are the places where, in a very, very covert way, they can begin to talk about what's actually going on in their lives so that you have this this um, sort of reality porn old reality porn commercial about somebody stealing lunches from the break room. And on the one hand, it's like, oh, it's sort of fun to remember a time when that was the kind of thing we got upset about with somebody taking lunches. The I don't know if I'm giving too much away, but the this, this sort of music medley that they also sing. Like, it's very merry and it's very fun. And again, it's remembering songs people remember. But But there is a sort of you know, there is a sort of bittersweet. Some of the songs are really about survival and staying strong. I mean, most pop songs are about suffering and yet surviving. So there is, in that way, you're able to sort of touch on on what's actually happening. And I think the idea behind the third act is that it's 75 years later and everyone who went, most everyone who went through that time and the worst of the time that followed it has died. And the people who are around, but the people who are around all have a very direct connection with it. You know, they would have heard you know, they would t- totally have known everybody who had survived, you know, grandparents and parents and 
older siblings. So it would still be very present to them, but they could a little bit begin to approach it more directly. Absolutely, but they're approaching it through this, uh, what we had been described an act earlier as meaningless cartoons, and it feels like that argument that your characters have in the second act, at least for me sitting in the audience, it shows that you know this story is now very, very meaningful. Like the, the the whole like debate, you know, like the whole survival of humanity has been everything has been packed into this story of well, Bart versus Mr. Burns. Part of wanting to, in a weird way, part of wanting to do this was thinking about uh, kind of envying the Greeks who, in their theater, they used all the same stories. Everyone knew what the stories were before they came in, but every time someone told the story differently, the meaning would change, or like the Elizabethan Shakespeare dealing with, you know, the stories of the War of the Roses. Everybody knew those stories, but he got to change the meaning of it. So I feel like the story itself, the story of the Simpsons, it has one meaning in our culture, but it doesn't have an intrinsic meaning. Like, the meaning is what you, you bring to it. And in these, these three different periods of time, people bring three different sets of meaning to the same narrative. So I saw this uh, a few days ago, and I've been trying to explain it to people. And I always end up really frustrated. I'm just like, okay, you just have to go see it. It's kind of difficult. I mean, it's, it's, it's really simple, but it's also very difficult to, to explain what exactly this play is simply and directly. And, and you must be a pro at it by now. And I, I would love for you to, to do it for me. Uh, see, I just tell people it's about people telling Simpson stories after the apocalypse. <laughs> I try that too, and they just stare at me. <laughs> I'm a brand new man. It's a bold new day. So that was Anne Washburn, who wrote the uh, Mr. Burns play. And that just got extended uh, till October 20th at the Playlight Playwrights Horizon. And uh, you can find more information and links on the WFMU TMI show page for today. There's a storm coming. I know, I know. There's a storm coming. I know, I know. Like I said, so much going on. The New York Film Festival also just started this past weekend. And uh, well, actually, quite a, quite a number of great films this year. Uh, you've got The Straw Dogs, Touch of Sin, the amazing Chinese film. And uh, I actually saw Alan Partridge last week. Apparently that's not going to come out uh, here in America until about January, but uh, I really enjoyed it. That is, uh, is screening, though, at the New York Film Festival. But this year they also have uh, tons of short films and some really good ones. I, I, I think I saw almost all of them. Short films are actually my favorite thing about uh, a good film festival every year during the the crazy South by Southwest thing. It's, it's actually the highlight of that for me, uh, getting to see the short film programming. So it's really great to see uh, the festival add them to the roster. So we're going to uh, talk with uh, two of the curators for uh, the short films, Marcella Giulio and Isa Cochinota who are gracious enough to give me a little time to tell me about some of the short films. And uh, Andrea Salenzi just posted a bunch of these trailers for these short films to the WFMU show page, so you can uh, see them there. But yeah, let's check in and hear 
about that? I guess the first thing I would have to say is I'm a little embarrassed, but I've never really noticed that uh, you had uh, short film programming in the New York Film Festival program. Is this something new? Well, you needn't be embarrassed because it's only been, this is only our second year that we've actually programmed separate short programs. Uh, prior to that, we were putting the, the short films before feature films, but we want more attention for them. Uh, yeah, you know, there's a few film festivals that have always had short film programming. Why is it that the, that the New York Film Festival took so long? Well, I, I can't really answer that since the film, this is the 51st edition yeah, yeah. of the Film took Festival. So long? <laughs> I wasn't here those first couple of years, so I don't know why that decision was made. Um, I think because it was a smaller festival with like 28 slots, 26 slots, there was no room for just a shorts program. So to enable to, in order to include them, they would program a short before a feature. I yeah, think that yeah, it, yeah. They, the decision was made to give them their own separate programs to bring more attention to them as, as an art form, not just as the cartoon before the feature. And we are able, we're given a lot more freedom to program that way. If you're programming before a feature, you have the time, writing time concerns, and they have to sort of work together as a program. So there were so many films we could not show, wonderful, great films, simply because they didn't fit. And that's a disservice. It's a disservice for form. So let's just let's tell me about some of the ones that you just decided to put into this the, the program this year. Oh, Nine Meter, a uh, Danish film about a oh gosh, I don't want to describe it to you. A young man who's he's has magical thinking, he's trying to save his mom who's ill. I can't tell you what the short is about. You have to come see it. But it's very it's a scary, intense film. You have to see it. I think we were very excited when we found shorts that. Uh, we're, we're different, and uh, directors let their imagination fly, like in the case of Frayed, which is another one of our favorite from the UK, mm -hmm. and uh, it mixes live action with uh, animation, and uh, it's also kind of mind-blowing, the, the concept, a woman who's riding a bus and can't stop her, her thoughts from attacking her and all, all of a sudden the thoughts fly out of her head literally and so that's when it turns into animation so um there's yeah. a lot of that kind of uh, well subconscious password also combines animation with, with live action from this short film from canada really funny again there's a lot of comedy this year which is unusual mm -hmm. we don't see? usually see it um but in the, our shorts program one we have an australian film my mind's own melody which is completely insane if i described it to you a musical sort of time travel mythical village thing you would say mm, what but it works and it's crazy and weird and totally works and what's be the better thing is the filmmakers actually working on a feature sort of based on this short so it's something completely radical completely different but it flies you can see the trailer for this one as well as some of the other ones we're talking about on the WFMU TMI playlist page for today. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we've read so many articles from uh, filmmakers from Steven Spielberg uh, to the Coen brothers, all talking about how difficult it is in Hollywood right now to get, you know, unique, strange movies made. And it seems that what always impresses me when I see short films is like, wow, you can do anything. There's so much creativity. And it seems to me that short filmmakers have this amazing total freedom to do whatever they want. And it shows. You think there's anything, you know, is that fair to say that? It's fair to say that. I think that the problem with Hollywood is the budgets the, and the expectation, the expectations from the studios themselves. They want big stars, want big budgets, big action. And the short film filmmakers have none of those constraints. They're completely free. And they can experiment. 
Yeah, no, especially um, what Issa said about not having not having a budget or having a very minimal budget. I think that frees uh, filmmakers a lot because they become more resourceful and they use mm-hmm. their imagination much They're more. They're forced to be up. creative. Mm-hmm. So the New York Film Festival is now uh, in full gear. Try to catch the shorts programming if you can. I've posted uh, some of the trailers for some of the films on the TMI Accu playlist for today. I also have to say, in the shorts program, number two is one of my favorite short films I've seen in a while. Caught it at the South by Southwest Film Festival. It's called Postmodem, and it's from filmmakers Jillian Mayer and Lucas Leva, who, man, have the most amazing imaginations ever. But this film's got some really catchy tunes in it, and I thought we'd go out with one of them from Postmodem. That's a song from uh, the film Postmodem, which really is an experience of itself. And you can see that as part of the New York Film Festival short film programming. All right, so we've still got about 25 minutes left in the hour, and uh, uh, we have a live guest now joining us. The writer Helen Epstein uh, has come in to talk to us about a uh, republication of a memoir called Fighting for Life from S. Josephine Baker and uh, welcome to WFMU. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for coming in. So uh, it's amazing that we're talking tonight because, uh, as you're going to hear in a moment, S. Josephine Baker is one of America's most uh, important public health crusaders. But Helen, uh, you write the introduction uh, to this new uh, edition from New York Review of Books. Why don't you start off? Uh, introduce us to to this wonderful woman. Um. Okay. First of all, I'd just like to tell listeners that this is not the Josephine Baker <laughs> that most people know, not the cabaret singer, um, but um, who was wonderful in her own way. 
but uh, a public health doctor who um, joined the uh, New York City Department of Health in 1902 um, and stayed there for about 20 years. And during that time, um, she's credited with saving the lives of about 90,000 New York City children, mainly in the slums of the Lower East Side, um, the shanty towns of what was that, of Amsterdam Avenue. Um, It was very squat. I mean, to save 90... 90,000, like, what, can you sort of describe the scene when she showed up? What was it like? Well, there were sort of goats and, um, t- and tin shacks on Amsterdam Avenue. It really hadn't been built up yet. And there were, um, the t- in the tenements on the Lower East Side, uh, people were sort of just crammed into these tiny apartments and um, living, you know, in some cases, uh, you know, eight people in a, in a single tiny room and sanitary facilities were um, unspeakable. And there were, uh, every summer, there were these explosive, huge diarrhea epidemics of um, di- um, um, typhoid, mainly, which blew through the slums and uh, killed thousands of children every year. And uh, um, there were, uh, um, in the, um, on Orchard Street where the, um, uh, coat makers were and so on there would be sort of little children with um typhus crawling around in the garments and so on destined for fashionable broadway shops yeah it sounds like a very very squalid uh wretched scene and and uh when when she showed up uh did she have a sense of uh what her mission was or or what, what did she set out to do well, she, I think she originally just planned to be an ordinary doctor and to offer, uh, pri- set up private practice like everyone else in, uh, in those days. And I think it was, it was actually quite difficult for a woman. There were very few women doctors in those days. And it was quite difficult to get a job in a hospital. So she, she and a friend kind of set up a private practice up on the, on the west side. And they soon found out that most of their patients couldn't afford to pay them um, she had uh, one of her patients was she once examined Lillian Russell, the movie star. But other than that, uh, most people, you know, she she took in. I think she earned about one hundred and eighty six dollars in her first year on the job, and so she was her sort of desperate, looking around for something to do. And she uh, saw an ad for a job in the Department of Health at the time and applied, and um, managed to get it. Wow. And what was the health department's approach to, to dealing with not just the squalid conditions, but the disease that, that was running wild through this part of the city and especially with children? Yeah. Well, they didn't really have uh, much of an approach. They would send health inspectors out into these, na- into these sort of hard-hit neighborhoods. And, but most of the health inspectors um, actually, there, there was sort of rampant corruption in the city at that time, which was just a beginning to change. There was a kind of movement of sort of clean government that was coming, and she hit that wave very fortunately. But at the time, most of the city health inspectors would were supposed to go and visit women and children in the slums and identify sick children and refer them to doctors, but there wasn't actually that much doctors could do, um, and, they, and everyone sort of knew that. So the health inspectors often just filled in the forms and um, made up the numbers and walked away. But Josephine Baker actually went and knocked on doors and visited every family that she was assigned to visit. And when she came back, she reported to her bosses, uh, you know, these, this, this, these terrible statistics. And um, 
you know, if she'd done that 10 years earlier, 20 years earlier, she might well have been fired for making the others look bad. But in this case, uh, they, um, her, um, there was an, a new health commissioner had just taken over, and he sacked the others and promoted her. Ah, so. Uh, so you said that she, you know, we can credit her with saving, you know, thousands and thousands of, of children. What did she start doing then? So she starts collecting the data, and then if we look back at her legacy, what were some of the things she started changing? It was really there was, um, it was really very very simple and nothing very spectacular in those days. Um, what's so remarkable about what she did is that this was these were in the days before vaccines most vaccines anyway, and before anti, long before antibiotics. So if you caught one of these da- diseases, it was usually fatal. Um, so what she did is emphasized prevention. And she sent, uh, at those, in those days, they did have a very good birth registration system. So every time a baby was born in the city, uh, it would be reported to the Department of Health as it is now. And she sent uh, nurses, trained nurses, out to each house where it, in these troubled neighborhoods uh, where a child had just arrived. And the nurse would counsel the mother and encourage exclusive breastfeeding um, and, dis- and essentially just discourage dangerous behavior um, that, uh, um, and so on. And that was pretty much enough. I mean, just... To, to just really sort of teach very, very basic child care. It has to be borne in mind that a lot of these mothers and families came from rural areas of southern Europe. They came from Italy or they, or they came from Ireland, which isn't southern Europe. But, um, but they really came from, from areas where uh, diseases didn't spread very much because there were people lived at great distances from each other and people might encounter a few hundred people in a lifetime. But... Ah. Um, in these densely packed uh, slums, the diseases would just spread like wildfire. They were known as crowd diseases in those days because, um, because of the way they spread. Mm. And uh, so people really didn't know what to do. And so you'd have these, um, these mothers sort of innocently, you know, feeding their babies beer, or letting them play in the gutter beer. and so on, which was very dangerous <laughs> and uh, yeah. might not have mattered if they were back in... Uh, you know, Donegal or wherever they came <laughs> from, but it, it did here. Yeah, and it seems that she really looked at things through the lens of poverty, too, and in fact made some very interesting observations that that really were radical at the time about what babies required. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of her, one of her most powerful insights, actually, which is really extraordinary and still... Um, uh, it's not even clear it's, it's entirely sunk in yet today but it it seems there's a lot that we're talking about that hasn't sunk in yet today (laughs) oh that's for sure absolutely as uh as our our friends in washington testify but um but yeah another thing that she she sort of proved is um the importance of um not only um hygiene and and breast milk and so on for children, but was also the importance of love. And she actually proved that scientifically, which was quite extraordinary. She had, um, in those days, um, before the widespread use of birth control, there were many illegitimate children in New York, and the babies would kind of turn up on doorsteps and in, in the park and so on, and it, uh, and and just be sort of abandoned at birth. And they became the um, responsibility of the city uh, foundling homes. And the, the, um, 
she made, Baker made sure that these foundling homes uh, really offer these kids the best standard of care, the best hygiene, the best nursing care, and so on. But still, about half of them died. And of the premature ones, just about every one of them died. And uh, it was... Um, it was sort of heartbreaking for the nurses because they didn't know what they were doing wrong. And um, Baker, who had by that time, this is about 1912, I think, had been working in the slums for a very long time and had trained a kind of cadre of, of extremely expert uh, mothers down in, uh, in uh, around Hester Street in the Italian neighborhoods and so on. And she decided that she would try an experiment, and it was very ingenious. She just had a sort of an idea, um, which is kind of based on the idea that, that the, while the death rate in the slums had plummeted uh, under her administration, the death rate in the richer neighborhoods hadn't really changed much. And she suspected the missing ingredient uh, might be a kind of, uh, the kind of gushing mothering that some of these uh, more traditional poor mothers uh, from the old country actually exhibited and that uh, a lot of the richer kids were, were raised by nurses when they didn't receive that kind of direct maternal attention. And so she gave these kids, uh, these poor little foundlings, um, uh, to some of the um, mothers on Hester Street that she'd worked with. And she says, um, you know, as she, as she says herself offhand, it sounds like murder taking these kids out of these <laughs> spick and span orphanages and putting them into, you know, these filthy slums in Hester Street. But the, uh, the survival rate of these kids actually soared when she did that. And it was an amazing uh, result. Yeah, yeah. Even the, even the most malnourished ones. In the, uh, in, the, in the foundling home, every single one of them died. And when she began giving them to these, these, mo- these mothers downtown, uh, about half of them survived. Yeah, and again, that seems like something very relevant that we're still talking about today. But is there maybe one or two other ideas of hers that you feel that you can trace up to the present day and age that are still very relevant? Um, the idea of the, the school nurse. She was uh, <coughs> New York City uh, at the, around the time of her administration really pioneered the school nurse who would sort of make sure that... Uh, um, um, sort of acute problems that kids had uh, were dealt with, and that they had uh, they weren't having problems with eyesight or hearing or uh, bad teeth and so on. Hmm. Um, she encouraged toothbrushing for all children. She fought the toothbrush wars, which she describes for very. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to make her sound that serious. Now <laughs> she's starting to sound like Bloomberg, you know, like and the, the sodas. She's very fun. I mean, she, was. she is. This book is so fun to just dive into. I mean, it, yeah. she seemed like a very exciting, very special uh, person. She was, and you know, sort of. Um, maybe I I could read a passage. Um, Go for from it. the book to just give people a sense of what she was like and what the book is like, actually, um, and which is sort of relevant to, uh, to the present moment, in fact. Uh, after the success of her programs in New York, which also included um, um, these well baby stations where mothers could go and get um, safe milk supplies, for example. Communism. Yeah, and also a checkup from a doctor or a nurse. Um, 
she decided uh, with another with a group of women that they would go down to Washington and try to draft a bill to make these services available to women and children all over the country. Uh, and it was an enormous success. At this time, we've forgotten uh, this woman, Dr. Baker, but she was famous nationwide, in fact, all over the world at that time. And um, she... Um, um, uh, uh, worked very hard with uh, two senators, uh, Shepard and Towner, to draft a bill uh, that would provide the funding for these services. And one of their greatest uh, opponents of this bill, which eventually passed in watered-down form, was the American Medical Association at the time, uh, which was backed at the time by very powerful Republicans who were very determined to prevent um, Social uh, government support for social services, as they still are. Which was again, we're talking about health care for babies. Yes, for children, children and and mothers. Yes, yeah. And um, Baker was in Washington the way the day a young New England doctor explained the American Medical Association's position to a congressional committee. And here's what he said. We oppose this bill because if you're going to save the lives of all these women and children at public expense, what inducement will there be for young men to study medicine? Senator Shepard, the chairman of the committee, stiffened and leaned forward. Perhaps I didn't understand you correctly, he said. You surely don't mean you want women and children to die unnecessarily or live in constant danger of sickness so there will be something for young doctors to do. Why not? The New England said the New England doctor who did at least have the courage to admit the issue. <laughs> I mean, you're smart. It is again. Is is if it was maybe any other day other than today, I would laugh with you. But again, it just seems amazing that as we're talking about this woman, this is from 1920 mm. that you're reading, right? Mm. You were reading something. You were describing a scene in Washington in 1920. Yeah. It is almost a hundred years <laughs> later, and right now we have uh, a group of. Uh, Tea Party hooligans uh, <laughs> uh, shutting down the government because they that's the only thing, the last thing they can do to shut down the idea of health care, preventative health care services. It's exactly the same thing. It's a very powerful theme, it's and I, I, I have no idea what it's about, <laughs> to be honest, but it's... It's it's weird. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, again. If it wasn't just today, I mean, you know, on your way over here on the you know uh, on the path train, I mean, we basically have. It looks like tonight the the, the government is going to go and get do it shut again. down. Yeah, yeah, it's it's so unbelievable. But you know, what about her at the time? I mean, how did she persevere in 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 the face of roadblocks like this? I mean, it seems that she was you know as much as her dream of preventative programs and, you know, pushing these ideas forward, she accepted that there, you know, she had these clowns like this doctor <laughs> to, you know, stopping things, but she still seemed to per persevere. Yeah. And I mean, in a, and in a very good humored way. And I think, I don't know. I mean, a lot of her ideas, even if the government funding for this program did not survive. A lot of her ideas did survive. The idea that uh, children need regular checkups, that they need particular kind of care at home, and so on. Um, uh, all of those ideas, really, she's responsible for. Yeah. And 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 
that's her legacy. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about her because, you know, in this book, we, I mean, we, we haven't even talked about her famous encounter with toy- Typhoid Mary. Yes, yes. Uh, she was actually the person who captured Typhoid Mary twice. Typhoid Mary, um, for those of you who don't remember, was a cook who worked in various fashionable houses on Fifth Avenue. And she was chronically infected with typhoid and um, killed a number of the people that she worked for and was spreading typhoid all around the city in this way. And um, the health department managed to kind of identify her and track her down because everywhere she worked, she would cause this problem. And um, Josephine Baker actually... uh, um, uh, tracked her down, and they ha- they had to actually restrain her. And Josephine Baker actually had to sit on her all the way to the hospital in the um, in the police wagon. Wow! So w- when she leaves uh, the Lower East Side, uh, what 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 happens to her later in life? Um, well, she uh, toured Soviet Russia at the time. She went. She had a. Um, uh, and she visited, uh, which was very, at that time, very um, advanced in, uh, in its approach to child care. Everything that we still lack, in fact, a universal system of child care, preschool, um, medical care for everybody. They had We're going to shut the government down <laughs> before <laughs> we have that. Exactly. Uh, they had that even then. Um, but um, there was a kind of grim uh, um, aspect to it, and it it um, and she comments on it in a kind of interesting way uh, because this was the 1930s, remember, and already the Soviet Union was really sort of gir- girding for war. And as she said, you cannot talk to any tourist guide for ten minutes without hearing something about the Red Army and the impending war. And from sickening experience, she says, I knew it was no accident that in 1934, the two groups of Russians who looked really well fed were the soldiers and the children. Wow. Which was... uh, You know, you say that the reform uh, movement had started and she did have some backup, but it still seems that New York was, you know, just a a hellhole. There was tons, there was so much corruption, but it still seemed that she was able to persevere. I mean, she seems almost very heroic as a heroic figure. She was heroic, but she was also empowered, I think, by the fact that the city was in the process of changing. Remember, Teddy Roosevelt had been been the... um, uh, uh, had tried to uh, clean the city up, and yeah. there was a great moment. It was a great moment of reform as well. So things were really changing, and she was part of an enormous social movement that we actually need again uh, now. Yeah. But, um, so you you talk about some of the things she had to deal with on the corruption would be, you know, city bosses trying to pass off their mistresses to her. To that to still happened. <laughs> that's for sure. Um, As to what? To, to to have fake nurse jobs? Exactly, exactly. They were um, they would call her up and uh, you know when they had uh, and try to get her to hire her cast off their cast off mistresses as nurses and so on. But um, um, she usually declined, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, but uh, 
that was uh, relatively mild compared to what used to happen. Before. Well, we can read her whole story in this wonderful uh, new um, uh, edition of, of, her, of her life's story. And uh, our guest, Helen Epstein, wrote the uh, introduction to it. But when it, before we wrap up here, it flew so fast. Do you want to tell us how her story ends? Where does she end up? Well, she um, lived with her uh, close associate and friend, uh, Ida Wiley, who's also a wonderful writer, by the way, and also, um, I think, largely out of print, unfortunately. Um, but Ida Wiley was originally an Australian woman. She came to America. She wrote about 30 novels and several screenplays for Hollywood, including Keeper of the Flame with, I think, Spencer Tracy. And... Uh, she um, and I think uh, helped um, with helped uh, sort of buff up Josephine's prose, so <laughs> definitely benefits from that. There was a real writer behind this book. That's another wonderful thing about it. And uh, she um, and they lived together in Princeton, and they they had another roommate who was named Louise Pierce who was a brilliant scientist who helped develop the cure for sleeping sickness and actually wow. went alone to the Belgian Congo in 1922 to test it and prove that it worked because that was where the small that was where the sleeping sickness was so that um, sounds like quite uh, a, a group uh, I would imagine they would have had amazing uh, parties yes <laughs> so <laughs> Wow. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming in to tell us about it. The book is out now from uh, New York Review of Books. And uh, amazing. A hundred years ago, we were still having the same conversations. Yes, absolutely. Uh, hopefully for not another hundred. <laughs> Thanks again, Helen. Pleasure. Listening to WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, in Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Coming up next, Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show.
make me stray. Serving me death on a silver tray. They get on my nerves, wasting my time. Offering me dope, sex and crime. But I hang tough and stand up tall. I look them in the eye and I tell them all. Get out my face, you low-down cat. I'm a different breed. I ain't into that. Golden rule, study hard and stay in school. 
'cause I care. Be neat and clean whenever I'm seen. Have a friend stick to the end. I'm into that. Somewhere, shine my light and be out of sight. Trust in God wherever I trod. Early rise and exercise. Now I'm deep, deep in the bed. Yes, I am real deep. I'm gonna make something great out of myself. Take my talents off of the shelf. I'm gonna get a hit every time at that. And believe it or not. I'm into that. You can say what you want, but I'm into that. Call me anything you want to call me, but I'm into it. All the way. I'm into that. Listening to WFMU, and it's time right now for the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. You just heard right there the Rappin' Reverend with "I Ain't In to That." Today on the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show, an interview with from Detroit, Michigan, the band Death. Death. Today on the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show on WFMU. Now, to prepare you for death, I thought I would play some Detroit-related music that comes from a wonderful compilation put out by Norton Records called Friday at the Hideout, Boss, Detroit Garage, 64-67. to And speaking of the wonderful Norton Records, their warehouse was devastated by Hurricane Sandy. So if there's anything you can do to help out, to help them dry out all the thousands of records, CDs, memorabilia, etc., they could really use your help. 